Cambridge. I'm the marketing director at E92. Thanks very much for joining our webinar on the cyber side of social engineering. Um, I'll just run through a couple of uh, details in terms of how the format's going to work. So the, in terms of the length, we'll be here for about uh, just over an hour, an hour and 15. Um, we've got a number of different presenters and I'm pleased to introduce them all. So as well as myself, we're obviously joined by our keynote, Jenny Radcliffe, the people hacker. So we'll be uh, joining her very shortly to, to run through an introduction. So she'll be giving some background about, uh, about herself, about her new book. Book, the People Hacker, um, and a little bit about of her experiences in the world of uh, of social engineering in a very physical sense, um, complementing the, the cybersecurity side of things. Then we've got three presenters from uh, some of our vendor partners. We'll be joined by Ronnie Tukazowski, who's the Principal Threat Advisor at CoFence, Sue Dunbar, who's a Channel Account Manager at Trend Micro, and Simon Huber, Senior Sales Engineer at Picker Security. So in terms of the format, we'll be talking to Jenny for around half an hour, then we'll pass over to our presenters uh, from our vendor, vendor sponsors. Um, that'll be around 30 minutes. And then we'll have a panel debate at the end, which will be around 15 or so minutes. One thing I definitely encourage you to do is to ask questions. Uh, we do have the chat box and the Q&A function. Feel free to use those as we go. We definitely either address them as we go along or we'll have the opportunity to ask the whole panel um, at the end. So we really want to make that interactive at the end. This is your opportunity to ask some of our, our experts in the field um, some great questions in terms of their experiences, what they're seeing out there, practical advice um, or you know, kind of any other fascinating questions you'd, you'd absolutely like to ask. Um, one thing we'll definitely mention as well is thanks very much for everybody who has joined. Um, obviously, one of the things we'll, we'll be sending out copies of the of Jenny's book to everybody. So really, really do appreciate that. Um, but without any further ado, we will get started and we'll introduce uh, introduce Jenny Radcliffe, who's our, our keynote speaker. Hi, Jenny. Hi there, Neil. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for having me. So actually, no, thank you very much for joining. So um, obviously, a lot of people may well have, uh, have come across you, um, you know, in terms of obviously, you, you, not just in terms of your your background work and many kind of uh, many of the companies around cybersecurity, but and obviously many of the kind of keynotes you've done. But obviously, since the books come out, been gracing our, our TV screens and what have you, giving some really fantastic practical advice. But if you want to kind of give a little bit of background about yourself and, you know, and how you got here. Yeah, I mean, my handle is People Hacker. Um, which which I didn't actually make up at all. There was a journalist interviewing me years and years ago, and I said to her, I'm a social engineer, so what we do is we hack people's brains, really, their behaviours and vulnerabilities, the mistakes that we all make. Um, and we use that to get into private parts of business, uh, you know, assets, the things that people want to keep secure. So I'm not a technical hacker. And she said, oh, so you're a people hacker. I thought, oh, I actually quite like that. So, yeah, so that's what I do. And social engineering, I specialize in two areas. As I say, the psychology of um, sort of scams and persuasion and influence and that type of thing. But also, and I think the thing that everyone always remembers is that we were physical infiltration spe specialists, which is hard to say. Um, and that's because I think, you know, I started doing that type of thing quite young. And there wasn't as many kind of alarms and, and everything else around. Um, and, and we really just did get into buildings. Um, if we were asked to, Neil, mostly. Well, you know, yes, mostly. Um, mostly um, to be, and certainly always these days, um, you know, to, for whatever that they needed to show that there was a way to get to those things, a way to get to sort of secure areas and private areas and locked areas. 
and show that we didn't need tech to do it really, that we could do it using weaknesses and operations and rules and people. So, so that's kind of what my brand of social engineering. And I always say that really for me is pure social engineering because the tech side is very minimal in what I do and what my, my crew do, my team. Um, and I mean, you know, people must be seeing me, but, you know, I do a lot of uh, keynotes, a lot of podcasts and interviews. I, I try and say yes to, to podcasts if someone asks me because people were kind to me and came on my show when I first started. Um, so I do try if I, if I can find uh, the diary space to do it. I, and I, I think now I've got a bit older um, and I'm sort of a bit sick of falling off roofs and things, which I'm sure we'll get into a bit later. So really the mission is just to tell everyone about social engineering because it's at the heart of so many breaches and also because not everyone gets it in work. So that's why, hence the TV and everything else, it's just trying to spread the word a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's something that, you know, kind of you definitely cover a lot in books, the, the physical side of, of being able to get access. And and I didn't expect to, to learn so much about what goes on on the roofs of office buildings, um, you know, it, a, a huge amount. That seems your expertise. But I wanted to touch on that, that human element to start, because it was a terrific phrase that you used early on in the book, which was social engineering is the weaponization of human vulnerability, which I thought was that was a fantastic term, and I think that gets the heart. So, but from your perspective, kind of, you know, what do you mean by that? Well, what, I guess what I mean is the right script will catch any of us, even those of us in the industry, will catch us out at some point, right? Yeah. Because this is a targeted attack. This is something social engineering scripts, whether that comes through phishing emails or vision or over social media or marketplace uh, cons. However it gets to us, it can affect us all. Just because some of us know more about it than others doesn't mean that if at the right time we heard the right kind of persuasion techniques and the right words that we wouldn't fall for it. And then what, you know, malicious social engineers do uh, is they turn that into the thing that exposes the company, the thing that leads to the breach. You know, so often blended with technical attacks, but it's that kind of idea that if there's a human there it's not their human nature to always be switched on. It's not human nature to always be on our guard. So what, what criminals do is they weaponize, they turn our humanity, if you like, into, into a weapon because that's what they use to start all these breaches. So that's what I mean. It's quite a emotive language. And always, if I say it in America, by the way, yeah, at a keynote, because I always start my talks with the definition and then that weaponization quote, uh, the the Americans all kind of clap and cheer if they love that word. So, <laughs> you know, hi to all USA friends. I know you love that one, but that's what I mean. And and that that point that you kind of say people don't know is necessarily know, and you can exploit that vulnerabilities because you know, and I think we become increasingly kind of aware we don't always necessarily know what bad looks like. No. You know, it's hard to recognize and differentiate between between good and bad, not just because, you know, the, the bad guys are good at this, but actually, you know, it, it's not always obvious. There's a lot of gray in between. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I think, uh, you know, popular culture is is to blame a little bit because it, people think a hacker should be wearing a hoodie and, you know, very technical. People yeah. think a criminal should look like a criminal. And society, and as I say, popular culture, it's all these sort of tropes, all these sort of memes that we get used to of, you know, what does, what does, if you like, the bad guys look like? What do the bad guys look like? What, how do they behave? And of course, real life's not like that. It, it's, criminals will, will will look and behave however they need to look and behave 
to catch a mark, right? To catch someone out. And and so, you know, it's difficult to reverse those prejudices in people because it's just reinforced all the time through movies and through what they sort of see online. They're fed this constant kind of story of what good and bad is in all contexts. And so we're kind of, we have a job in the industry to reverse that a little bit, I think, and to, and to say, no, you know, someone can be very polite. I mean, one of the reasons I was so successful um, as a social engineer from the physical point of view was because I was polite. I tended to be dressed as I needed to be dressed. So usually just about the same as people who would normally visit that office or, or, or factory or whatever it was. And I'd be polite and friendly and pleasant enough and not particularly stand out and, and why would she be a why would she be a criminal? It's, yep. They don't look like that, you know. But so. I suppose I suppose that's kind of getting people how to how to think about it a little bit more because obviously the you know the 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 the, the malicious actors the, the criminals here are, are you know are kind of doing all their research they're doing they're doing their plan so it's it's but and they're always going to be much more researched in advance so i suppose is awareness the first thing that we need to just kind of make sure that everybody is kind of just on their guard a little bit more and thinking about it because that's that that is a bit of a, a challenge because people are just trying to get on with their day job people just yeah because it's profoundly not their problem right because people yeah. have the word security in their title and it's those people that have to worry about that because i have to worry about marketing or sales or quality control you know everyone's busy um so I think I think there's two things in in what you just said I think I think we do have to keep going with awareness whatever way that works you know there's so many awareness products in our industry right now you've got everything from you know the click-through powerpoint once a year to sort of interpretive dance to teach people how to how to be more aware so we do have to do that but I think it's more than that I think it's communication you have to pass it back to the people you know, and, and get people interested in it and talking about it while still remembering those of us in the security industry that whilst we might love this and can endlessly talk about it and get excited about it, not everyone does. So it's kind of almost like health and safety. You have to give it back to people, let them come to us and talk about it. Make sure it's easy uh, for them to do that as well. So they know who to talk to. They know that there's conversation to be had. I, th- I think that's the two things have to go together. Yeah. And I think you you want people to own it. You want people to feel part of the process that it's, you know, it's a two way thing and they're learning about it in a good way, not just not just being told. And I I suppose that's one of the the challenges of of how we think about those kind of, you know, the the cyber criminals and malicious actors of moving a little bit away from the tropes, because if you know, and obviously we've seen a a rise in popular culture around hackers, not in terms of kind of films and TVs and everything. And if people are only thinking about them as being, you know, kind of bad guys with hoodies crouched over laptops, then it's easy to miss the, the the other types that are kind of just, you know, the normal thing or just a simple phishing email because because we're on the lookout for one thing. but it's it's we don't necessarily know what they're going to look like no and it's so hard because what I always talk about is the script will change uh, of of, of how they come for us if you like how people are targeted depending on a million things depending on the company and the culture of the company the research that uh, criminals might be doing but also on what you know what whatever sort of current events what's in the news um, and tech, you know, whatever the latest tech is, will be used to make the approach, to tailor the approach. If you think of something like a deep fake, um, you know, we'll talk about it later, I'm sure. But if you, you know, something like a deep fake, well, that's going to be used. Of course it is. That, you know, criminals will use whatever is available. And wherever people are, there are going to be other people looking to take that off them. So it, it really is important that we talk 
in general terms about this rather than saying a phishing email looks like this or a social engineer looks like that. Um, we've got to just speak generally about what to look out for, I think. Because at the end of the day, they're just tools, aren't they? They're just different ways of being able to to access pe- kind of access people. So I suppose you know it, it's important for us as a as a cybersecurity industry always to be to be evaluating that. And I suppose that that you know the the interesting position that you come in from you know as being a you know part of the ethical hacking community and you know making sure that hacking isn't a, a pejorative term. Um, how does that help you kind of get that and, and how would it help cybersecurity teams get an understanding as to how malicious hackers think in terms of you know being able to put yourself in a in a role of you know of of playing you know the red team against the blue team of being able to to test those defenses and being able to get the the defensive teams to think about you know what you know the, the sort of tactics and techniques and approach of the of the bad guys yeah i mean i think it's it's easy for us because we know we know the security so well it's actually quite easy to be caught out because in our kind of knowledge that there's a problem with well i know what this looks we have it too just from a different angle security people there's a tendency to say well i know what this looks like and yep. so you know your guards down even because we we all, and I'm including myself, absolutely. We all tend to think that we know what something looks like. I, th- I think the useful thing about kind of red teams, particularly, is that they have to have this attack perspective. I was talking about attack perspectives years ago, and it always sounds a bit alarming if you're talking to a non security crowd, but you know, you have to have that attack perspective. You have to be able to say, if if I had to break into here for some reason, if I was compelled to do so, if I had to get past everything, all, all the procedures, all the alarms, you know, the, on the network, all the software, everything that's there in defense, how would I do it? Because I think that's, if you can't think that way, it's very hard to defend it uh, against it. And I think one of the things is, the again, is that we don't necessarily think the technical way. So some of the things that I talk about in the past, like using, like we use them um, extra strong mints as yep. a as chalk when we're inside a site because one time we got caught with chalk and the, the explanation just didn't wash with the security guards <laughs> because why would anyone carry chalk around? I think one of the teams said that they were a school teacher part time, just oh. didn't. Fl- it was just the first thing. So you yeah. know we use those and it's things like oh so you're thinking like that. It's like thinking a couple of steps ahead and thinking is this plausible? Um, and how could how can this little thing be exploited? I think that's a very useful skill to have. And I think we do have it in security. You know, there's pe- great people on both sides putting a lot of time and effort into it. But I think I think you have to have it. I think without that attack perspective, we get sort of lost in what we know. And just just very quickly on this, I did um I did end up speaking to somebody from a very technical company not too long ago. And they, re- and you know, went through all the brilliant products and it all sounded very good and very technical and, and brilliant at what it is. And then just said, so I don't see why we need anything to do with social engineering because the machines do everything. Um, and that's, to me, that's fatal because there are yep. humans involved. If there's humans involved, then social engineering can take place. So yes. don't discount it, you know. And it's 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 that I suppose the, the bit where we still definitely have the ahead of the machines is that creativity. 
when defense teams only think they only think about attacks in the form of their own defense quite naturally because we only think about what we know and as you get the advantage of the kind of you know kind of gave the example of the the chalk or what have you or or being able you know other examples in the book of you know trying to you know kind of talk to people and, and play on their fears or play on their kindness of needing a toilet or being able to go through it's 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 having the creativity to think entirely out of your own perspective in a way that it's it's ve- it's very hard to be able to do that. Yeah, and the thing is, as soon as you meet people, all your plans don't necessarily work. So we plan and plan and plan, strategize all of our jobs, but but there's something very uh, important about being able to tactically adapt to what one human or what even a group of humans are doing to the mood. If you like, how can you? How can you sense a mood with a machine? It's very difficult to do. I'm, I'm sure we can, you know, because let's face it, we're all, you know, we're in Terminator 2 practically. I'm joking. Uh, but, you know, it's that, but like humans can do that. We can sort of have a sense of it. We catch a look or, and it's being able to read that situation and adapt to it. And, and the sort of, um, the proxemics, you know, the, the, the way everything's positioned, the way people position themselves, all of that stuff's really important in the moment. But I don't, that's not that I'm discounting tech, you know? No, but it's it, it, it kind of having that ability to be able to think outside. And one of the things you kind of kind of mentioned was the, the Dunning-Kruger effect that I think that kind of cybersecurity teams can kind of suffer from a little bit. If you kind of, yeah, wanted to explain your yeah your experience on that. Yeah. Well, Dunning-Kruger's sort of got two sides to it, really. I've touched on one already, but it, it's, it's if we have um, overconfidence in our abilities, then it sort of equals a lack of skill. It, it, it's this, uh, it's sort of a kick in the teeth. The minute that that you're good at something or that you're clever, then your your overconfidence leads to actually a lack of skill. It's exactly what I was talking about because when we're so confident that we're that we're great at something, you all you must miss things because why do you need to pay attention to detail almost? Uh, and I think security teams, you know. I don't see that level of arrogance often in security. I used to see it more. I think mostly now the industry is maturing and people understand that. But I do still occasionally see it in clients. You're, well, we're very good, so I'm sure this is this this car. It's very simple, Jenny. You're putting notices on doors or whatever. It can't be that effective, but it, you know it is. And then of course the other side of the Dunning Kruger uh, effect for which applies here as well is that. If you excel at something, yeah, and if it's very easy for you to understand it, then there's an assumption that the task is simple for everyone, right? That it's so like we understand it so much, we understand security so much, it's simple for everyone to follow. Um, and again, that's just a falsehood, it just isn't true. And also it le- leads to vulnerabilities because we don't explain it so well, we just think it's obvious. And actually, I do see a lot of security professionals still. You know, and I'm sure I've done it myself, really. But, you know, making mistakes online, you might say to people, be careful what you post on social media. But you'll see security professionals posting things that we wouldn't advise clients to do it. But then you have to say, well, maybe they've assessed the risk and and they're better at it. But don't improve us about that. Yeah. 
And I suppose that kind of does relate into that 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 need around how to build a positive cybersecurity culture and an inclusive one and a transparent one that everybody gets involved. It's it's acknowledging how everybody really can can play a role and 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 understanding the importance of everybody, you know, kind of getting involved and not being, you know, it's easy always to talk about humans being the weakest link, but it is important that everybody kind of not only does play a role, but feels they play a role and and kind of relishes and steps up to the, the opportunity to kind of to, to play a role, even if they're in security, but in a in a you know they're the they're the hive is kind of guard on the you know on the entrance point to a to a to an office or a location or a warehouse. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think the big key to it is not to separate ourselves as a group, because because yeah. as, as soon as you put people into one group, even mentally, like, I'm in this group, they're in that group, automatically that gets in the way of communication and harmony even. And so then we wonder, you know, in the past, certainly, then security teams used to wonder, well, why is no one listening? Why does nobody talk to me? Well, it's because either consciously or subconsciously, we're kind of setting ourselves apart from everyone. Yep. Um, it's why I advocate and have always advocated that the security team should be uh, spread out in an organisation. I mean, physically spread out in an organisation, you know, or by all means have a sort of an office or a place where everyone congregates. But we should sit in amongst other teams yeah. I think uh, you know we can do that now just because otherwise that separation I don't think is helpful you know we've got a big enough struggle on our hands as it is the last thing we need is to kind of hide from everyone and and not yeah. be available so yeah that's part of it too not always possible no. uh, but where it is possible or, or times when it's possible I do think we should integrate as much as we possibly can even if that means you have to sit next to somebody consistently walking away to go and make a cup of tea and leave their laptop unlocked and you're going to have to watch that and you're going to have to bear it and you have to see people putting post-it notes with their password. You've got to, that's, it's all good learning. Yeah. I, everybody you know else and then it. we end up like, but we end up then like the, uh, I'm just thinking of transactional economics, behavioral economics, but we end up like the parents, you know, like, like, yeah. a, like a nagging parent, which some of us are in that role anyway. And going, you know, oh, you know, mate, I really said don't do that. And they'll say, well, you're here. Yeah, I know, but we've got to try and get, it's got to become a habit, you know. We have to be in a habit. It's important. But again, it's about risk assessment, I guess, and threat assessment in the workplace. But yeah, yeah, I think we should sit there. But sitting next to someone who constantly doesn't do what we ask them to do is very frustrating for security people. I often get people saying, what about repeat offenders? You know, what about people who we've trained, we've talked to, we've trained, we've talked to, and they still keep clicking on the phishing email or whatever it is. And you know what you've got to do is say, well, some people, you you have to understand the way people work and that if part of their job is opening attachments and clicking links and yeah, you know we're the, that's why we're there as their backstop that's why we've got to say well we know this is going to happen so we need to be defend we need to def- try and prevent but defend when it does because people will always be people and that's the, the way that the best way to learn without a doubt so obviously one that you know the reason why we kind of obviously kind of got you on as well um is is the launch of your your new book which recently came out so i kind of wanted to to touch on that and kind of what you know kind of we do you know cybersecurity and technology generally will happily do lots of events and webinars and what have you but we don't always get much of a book and especially one that's yeah, that's you know I have to say it's kind of from a, a story perspective is is absolutely fantastic and it does because oh, it, it's it's all yeah it, it really it's kind of it brings it to life in an engaging way um and that's the point about you know kind of lots of very real people in it and 
it has to be said a few scary people in it, frankly. So um yeah, I wanted yeah, if you want to kind of give us a little bit of background as to you know what compelled you, what kind of what was the driver to to get it all down in print? Well, you know, I've been asked to write a book for years and, and I sort of had been writing a book for years. Um, but it, it's so busy, you know, those bad guys just don't stop, do they? So we're all busy and I'm kind of scrambling out on roofs and things. And then <clears throat> um it just got a bit real because uh, I eventually managed to write a couple of chapters uh, and I and my agent said to me, I'm getting, you know, if you can write one more chapter, I can send it to some publishers and see if people are interested. And like for me, once I actually sat down to write it, it was quite easy because I was really just remembering jobs I did. I just started to think about the structures. I was like, well, what do people always ask me at talks and, and things like this? They always ask me, oh, how did you start? And what was the scariest job? What was the funniest job? All these types of things. So I sort of thought what I want to do is I want to point out a little bit about the industry and about the way the industry, the sort of attitude to women and to people with non-technical skills in the industry and also how the industry is evolving. And I also wanted to share what, what my definition, what social engineering truly is at its heart which is all the different types of work with people. And, and honestly, I didn't see a book that really did that. I saw lots of books about sort of aspects of social engineering, lots of courses that were about pen testing, but nobody seemed to do my particular brand of it at all, um, which is, you know, bits of tradecraft and, and, and illusion and stuff. So, uh, so all I really had to do was sit and kind of write it. So I just wrote and I thought, well, if I pick sort of a dozen or so stories that show all the different elements of the job, show a little bit about how I got into it, my progression, I really just need to sit and do them. So when it went out to publishers, they were, they were really interested and I got a lot of interest and, and, and bids for the book. Um, and, and then I just had to write it. So all very straightforward, really. It was yeah. good to have a deadline because that was the thing that was stopping me. I was busy. I was, could always put it off. There was always an emergency. But then the, the tricky part is when they edit it because they edit it and they say, like a lot of my books mean running up and down stairs and things and, and, and different floors of, of buildings that we were breaking into. But I'd say, oh, it took me five minutes to get there. And they go, five minutes? You just said it was on the 10th floor and you were on the basement. And wouldn't it take a bit longer? And, you know, you just have to. And that was the thing. I had to think about the the actual logistics of the thing more yeah. than I had to think about the people and the stories, which were very clear in my mind because I kept diaries for years of all the jobs. Um yeah. But I just couldn't remember. And like they'd, they'd say, did that one come before that one? Or and I'd like, oh, did it? And I'd have to go back and check. But yeah, but yeah. the actual writing of it was just memory. It must have it must have been quite interesting kind of going back and, and seeing how you're, you're, you know, revisiting some of those and seeing how the approach has evolved and, and you know, how your approach has evolved, but also how organisations have approached some of these challenges, both from a defence and attack and, and how how the attacks have evolved in terms of or in terms of, you know, your approach and how cybersecurity or, or physical security teams now kind of, you know, how they've evolved in terms of defending, defending kind of physical buildings and, you know, and obviously the systems that, that are in within them. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I hate to say it, like, but there's space for another one there because, as I say, of sort of 600, I, I have sort of in my head the figure of about 600, if I work out, because I started very young, if you say, um, but, I, you know, and there were some years I didn't do many. There were other years when we were literally job to job. I still only picked a few stories because there was only room for a few. So now I always think, well, the progression will be the next kind of, you know, 
18 stories or so of different jobs and, and try and show those aspects of it and show a little bit how there's more tech involved and some of the early jobs I couldn't do now because they have better alarm systems better yeah. cctv and all those types of things but back in the day there wasn't so you know it's almost like to try and try and show that progression but all i could really do was just tell people what i'd done just say look this is my job this is what i've done my whole life and this is how it you know panned out and you know there it is and, the, and, and i think the other reason that it all came about neil was because i thought if i don't write this down soon and maybe no one will like it or buy it. That, that wasn't the point. If I don't write it down soon, I probably will start to forget. You know, there was like some of the stories that I left out only had bare minimum details. And I'm trying to remember. And a lot of the people I work with have, have moved on in some way or other back in the day. You know, they're either in the industry employed and don't want to be named. Hello. Yeah. Um, or they went and did something else or they moved to different countries or even passed away. So, you know, you kind of think, this will die as a memory. And I think as well, sorry, just to go on, but I think as well with the amount of technology coming in and, and the tie-ins between the human side and the technological side, the physical side of infiltration and red teaming is kind of changing and probably will never be that again. So I was trying yeah. to capture that moment of when those physical infiltrations really were such a huge part of security. And I'm not saying that it'll, it's entirely gone, but I think the way that we did it has probably changed because the way tech has changed, the industry's uh, matured, it needed to be captured like a moment in time, I think. Yeah, I would agree with that. But I think it's actually interesting to see that while it might become rarer or more challenging, in a way, it will always remain even more important or potentially vulnerable as an entry point because it's one of the few ways that you don't need incredibly advanced technology to get past incredibly advanced technological defences. It's the, the, the humans are, The humans are still there. Yeah, and the humans will always be so it will always be important. But I do think uh the way that we do it's going to change a little bit. I think the, the research and everything's there, but even in some of the jobs that I've gone back to for clients I did, you know, a while ago, you know, they've took the advice and, and there are things now in, in place that would make it difficult. We'd have to find a different way in. The majority yeah. of businesses though, um, are not high-tech and don't throw millions at this, and the majority of businesses still can be accessed with the ways we always used to do it we'll say the majority but the the majority of clients who come to us have usually already had a malicious uh break-in or a malicious infiltration and that's usually why they come to us to to try and fix it it was definitely interesting seeing the evolution and i think not just in the industry generally but obviously i think within your own acknowledgement of how this became more of a legitimate part of of, of of security that I think at, at the start it definitely uh, kind of had the approach that you were you know you were kind of not making it up as you went along but I think the industry was very much I know we were but it, it wasn't it wasn't a thing was it it was it was being defined and then it, it, it kind of as the years went on it became quite a little bit more accepted practice and something you could tell other people about it was always a thing in law enforcement and the military and it was yeah. always a tradecraft a lot of what I do is you could say is like a sort of civilian version of tradecraft um and it was always bigger in the states but of course when I started doing that I'm old to all the youngsters listening um there wasn't even an internet so we couldn't really research it very well and even it took a few years before this kind of came online and I could sort of start looking and say oh you know 
that because what what happened was I actually started looking online and and saw sort of descriptions and thought that's what I do but they're not criminals they're legitimate security consultants now I was a legitimate security consultant but you know we operated outside of kind of company guidelines and procedures still do to a certain extent within the law and within kind of uh, ethical guidelines I lay out um but but you know this was clearly something that you could be hired to do and and it took me a long time to get there and to really explain it and then I didn't trust uh, you know, I had interviews in the early days with people. I didn't really trust to kind of go into too much detail because it wasn't as talked about. It wasn't such a recognised term. And today it still isn't outside of the industry. So I've still got people I worked with who haven't seen the book and see me on TV and everything are coming to me now and saying, what is it you say you did? You know, I was with you on that trip and yeah, I don't remember. I'm like, I know, I know you don't. But that's, you know, read, if you read what I say, that's exactly why. Because if you imagine if you can't grasp it now, you never would have grasped it then. All you'd have known is that I was sort of sneaking out at night and, and, and coming back in the morning and not when I was meant to be in, you know, in the next room to you in some hotel doing business. So it was a difficult thing to sort of come out and say I did. It still isn't easy to explain. And it still has lots of different variants. So it, it was... It's nice now that it's more in the open. And one of the reasons that I take some of the TV gigs I do and stuff, even though, as has been pointed out, that might be a bit of a hazard if you're trying to work undercover. Um, it yeah. isn't, because no one's going to recognise me, believe me. But <clears throat> it's just to bring it to people who just don't know about it. Because yeah. if you don't know about social engineering, back to your first question and your first point, if you don't know what that is, and if you don't understand that sort of, psychologies at the heart of most of these breaches then lending into the tech then how are you ever going to protect against it it's not those of us in the industry that need to know it's people who are not in the industry maybe don't even receive training who say to themselves what's mfa or what's a vpn or why is it dangerous for me to put pictures of my kids and my car and my lanyard you know they genuinely the majority of people still need that education so that's really why a the book and b why i've raised my own profile a bit just to try and and bring it out there and other people have done the same for the same reason i think absolutely well i think that kind of that's a a great a great point to finish finish this section on thank you very much um hopefully you'll be able to join us um you know back again in in 30 minutes when we have a a bit of a panel debate so if anybody's got any questions uh for for jenny definitely a hold fire um so we'll we'll address them later on when we have the the q a afterwards but for now jenny thank you very much thank you see you in a bit Right, we're now going to pass over uh, to Ronnie from uh, CoFence, um, and particularly is going to kind of carry on that topic around uh, around social engineering, um, in particular from from your perspective, and you know, especially from a, a scam perspective, Ronnie. Yeah, so from a scam perspective, it's really really interesting. So one of the main areas of crime that I work with is called business email compromise, and very simply, the way it works is someone will pretend to be a person in authority at a company, they will go and send an email over to somebody who has some financial ability to make a wire transfer. And then they'll say, hey, I'm the CEO of this company. I need you to do this wire transfer for me. And what happens is more times than not, somebody will go and make that transfer. From a statistic perspective, we know that for the losses that are that we've seen, 
over the last seven years, this area of crime has been the number one crime for seven years in a row. Um, and Jenny, well, you made one point. I want kind of want to reiterate that. Uh, you said psychology was the root of many of these breaches and 100% agree with that. So many organizations I've seen and worked with, they don't understand that you have to account for the human emotions. You have to account for the human psychology. And when you see that victim who actually clicks that phishing email, while we're so quick to jump and judge and be like, hey, that's a stupid person. They were not able to see this technical thing. Like, you don't know what else is going on behind the scenes. You don't know what else they had in their head. Did they have an argument with their spouse? Were they worried about trying to make rent? Were they worried about trying to pay this thing over here? There are so many other things that actually play into this, um, just as us with humans, that in many cases, we really don't understand a lot of the way that that works. So another interesting anecdote is when it comes to business email compromise, it is now becoming a multi-layered type of fraud. And what I mean by that is that while you usually had just that one instance where you have just the phishing email, scammers will also use people and weaponize emotions against other people in order to do things. And what I mean by that is that in almost every case that we see, there is a romance scam victim or there's a catfishing victim behind the scenes that has been manipulated into sending and receiving these funds. So the what the, the scammers will do is they will go ahead and groom a lot of their victims to go and send a lot of those funds. And that, again, very much going back to the human emotion on that. One of the things that I see is that when it comes to working with those victims, they have a lot of other things at play at or, that are at play as well. Um, I uh, get to work with a lot of romance scam victims, and I got to speak with one victim about two weeks ago. And for her, once she started coming out of it, she said it literally felt like her consciousness was hijacked. And with the way the emotions work in our body, our consciousness and our body will follow suit with that. And for the victim and for the scammer, the, the scammer was telling her all of the right words that she wanted to hear. So that's why she ended up falling more head and more head over heels on that. And uh, Neil, I actually did lie because I said I wasn't going to have any slides to share, but I actually found a couple that I did want to share. So when it comes to understanding and kind of getting in the head of the scammer and everything, we have to understand the way that they, oh wait, wrong slide, hold on. So when it comes to working with the scammers and trying to understand their perspective on things, we want to try and get in their heads and understand how and why they do this stuff. So. This is from a type of romance scam that is very popular coming out of East Asia right now that we're seeing. And it was the number one cybercrime for 2022. So very much again with what Jody was mentioning, for playing up on the emotions of the victims, this is a tutorial and it's about, let me see how many, how many slides was this? So this is a 30, 31 slide tutorial on how to commit a certain type of fraud. This has been translated from Chinese to English. And right here, we can see in slide four, they actually call out the emotional experience where the scammers know that they're going to play up on the emotions. They want to play up on somebody who has been single or divorced. And they want to try and say, okay, I lost somebody. I know what it's like to have lost somebody because the a person who has gone through that type of experience, that type of trauma, they're going to be more likely to fall victim to this. And the scammers know this. Um, I have seen some cases where it's actually 38 different layers of documents and tutorials that have almost like human debugging information for the consciousness to where it's to be like, okay, so here's what you're gonna say here. 
Here's what you're going to say here. If your victim is unsure here, say this thing to help reassure them. If they're okay there, they come over to this step. If they say this thing over here, then go over here. And that's the layer that we're seeing right now in terms of a lot of different scams is that very much the scammers are playing up on those emotions. And again, it's something where at the end of the day, many of us have no idea how our emotions work. And some of us have experiences in our life where we will either shut them off. We don't even know how to feel on something. We will go and tell ourselves different stories about different experiences we have. Um, but at the end of the day, the human is your weakest link on that. And over on the co-fence side of things, that's kind of where we start approaching things is looking at it from, okay, what can you do to help teach the human on a lot of these things? While you can go and sell a blinky box, it's going to go and find this piece of malware, that piece of malware there. Um, at the end of the day, you have to embrace the human and you have to embrace the way that they approach and the way that they think that, about things. Because if you're not training that human, then they're going to be your weakest link in the whole scam. And it only takes one person to click to actually compromise your organization. So that's why you need to focus on a lot of the psychology and a lot of the human aspect of it. And you can't ignore that. So that's pretty much would be my uh, my explanation of some of the things that play into the BEC space, the romance scams, and how scammers will manipulate emotions and why you need to go and embrace some of that in order to help teach your users not to click certain things. Perfect. I mean, that, that's brilliant, Ronnie. One thing I just kind of, uh, just at the end of that, thank you for that. One thing I touched on was definitely the importance that you played about that, that we don't necessarily think about is that um, emotional engagement and that response. It's kind of easy to think of cybersecurity around being relatively dry and very technical and very digital. Um, and we don't always think about the, the emotional side of things. And I suppose you know that's where where clearly they clearly the, the, the you know the malicious criminals and the bad actors do um and and because we don't necessarily prepare ourselves for that emotional side we kind of prepare ourselves not to click on this to look at this to hover over an email address to make sure it's not compromised but we don't think about what if somebody sends something that happens to tick that box that something's bad happened in your life and has that emotional hit we don't prepare ourselves for that. That's not part of cybersecurity training, no, is it's it? it's not. And that's, a, and that's a thing most people don't realize is no matter if you are in touch with your emotions or you're disconnected from your emotions, the way our nervous system works, I'm not going to get into the whole science and other information about that, but with the way our nervous system works, we are walking, talking like radio receivers and antennas when it comes to emotions. So we're receiving emotions and we're sending emotions. And again, most people don't even realize that, let alone be able to actually be in touch with, okay, I feel this thing over here. Here's why I feel that. So yeah, I very much agree with you is that you have to go back and understand those human emotions and kind of understand how some of those things work. Could you, you know, for organizations build that into their, you know, into that, not build it into their defenses, but build it into maybe how they engage with their employees around, uh, you know, around cybersecurity awareness and, and testing of being able to kind of play with that and potentially teach people, you know, how they're going to how they're going to feel when they get compromised, that shame and embarrassment, but the importance of being able to to deal with that. I would even I would even lean harder into not just the, like even taking this outside of the cyber side, um, leaning into mental health, because I know all around the world, like mental health is becoming a very popular topic, big topic, because people are realizing, oh, wait, this actually does go back to a lot of deeper things on the psychology side. Most people don't realize that your experiences in childhood shape how you are today. So it's something where there are so many other aspects like that that very much play into what makes a victim a victim. 
Absolutely. Yes. Smash it. Well, th- thank you very much for that. Um, we'll definitely uh, come back to you in a little bit when we uh, join the panel in a second. Thanks. Thanks very much to, to Ronnie there. So um, we'll just uh, hand over now um, and I'll just um, highlight her up. Um, so Sue from uh, Trend Micro. Hi, Sue. How are you? Hi, thank you very much. Uh, um, uh, that was great to hear, actually, you know, like Joe talking about um, the, the humans involved. And I guess from, from our, my point of view, in terms of like what, what I'm going to touch on today is uh, around the, the threat research and what we do and, and what, we, what we're seeing. And, um, you know, there is always that human element involved. Um, and at the end of uh, last year, we produced a security predictions report. So that was for, you know, predictions for 2023. And we have um, our threat research teams. I'll just kind of share this actually in terms of, you know, what, what it is that we have uh, globally Um for our teams that you know where they're situated but you know of those 15 centers globally you know where they are in in relation to where we're seeing recent uh criminal underground investigations as well so so our threats uh research teams they will look at the, the whole threat landscape so you know those vulnerabilities and ex, uh, exploits what's happening in you know cyber criminal underground and those kind of communities and and that that team will actually sit and observe um, observe these com- uh, communities, the activity, any increasing activity, and what that allows to do then is for our future threat research team. So we have the future threat research team that are looking uh, twelve to twenty four months in advance, for example, to monitor sort of threats that are developing, threats that are evolving, all types of attack or, you know, techniques. And just to kind of mention a couple of the um, uh, points from the predictions for 2023, one of them was social engineering. And I thought this was actually quite topical of what, you know, what we've been speaking about today in terms of, you know, social engineering is an evergreen threat. You know, we are off the back of you know the the pandemic we've shifted the way we worked we all began to work remotely uh, from home connecting to home networks and as we've kind of evolved in that hybrid way of working we're actually then going back into the office you know people are meeting back up again and you know getting that that but that hybrid culture you know is still exists and will exist and a lot of people still work from home but in terms of like how does that affect you know uh, how can threat actors i guess take advantage of or exploit people and their weaknesses well as we you know we are a population of online purchasing we are making investments online you know what we're searching for online and there are malvertisements you know but going back to the sort of like um email compromise that Ronnie was just speaking about you know we these threat actors uh, are using that uh, using that knowledge um, and taking advantage of uh, of people. And these some some scammers, you know, they don't need to have like all the knowledge. They can still uh, target and exploit um, a weakness in somebody, even with you know limited uh, with limited knowledge. And if you you know sort of thinking about that that work from home back into the office scenario. As you connect to your home network, 
your smart TVs connected to the home network, your, you know, your consoles are connected to the network. You know, there's all these different devices as well as what, you know, belongs to the company you work for. And as you travel back into the office, you're actually moving through different kind of security level zones, I guess, from being at home and then back into the office. And, you know, the interest in this terminology was island hopping. So, um, you know, threat actors are are looking for this kind of behaviour where they could actually, you know, use that homework, home network connection as a way in to uh to to then you know move laterally to get into the the enterprise network and that's when they can you know, obviously infiltrate enterprises as we see with you know attacks or breaches and you know when we look at cyber criminals you know the 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 way they operate is far more structured than before they are you know, running professional businesses, they're operating and reflecting the way that, you know, legitimate co- co- companies work. And they are, you know, running these businesses and communities in the underground as legitimate businesses in a illegitimate underground world, I guess. Um, and as we, you know, do our research and what we recognise in terms of the need for security skills, where there is a gap in security skills, on the reverse of that, they're doing the same. They're, you know, they're doing exactly the same. And crowdsourcing was something else that we'd noticed relatively new over the last 24 months, but we have seen increasing activity. And these reports, you know, these are available for um for everybody to go and have a look at and read in terms of the predictions. But the, the way that crowdsourcing uh runs, I guess, is similar to with the way we run our capture the flag events so but just in reverse so what they're looking to do is like exploit to bounty so they are companies these communities are hosting events hosting competitions and you know it could be articles are interested in you know recent articles that uh of information of knowledge um adapting techniques to maybe adapted technologies and you know just increasing the knowledge and they're using you know using these um competitions or these crowdsourcing events to recruit as well they're they're looking for for the skills as well to work for them or for rewards that could be bitcoin it could be cash and you know they're, they're looking to basically accelerate this criminal innovation the way that we you know want to want to do the same and, and evolve our technology as well in terms of you know, that capture the flag with detection and response and visibility, but they're, you know, but on the reverse. And, you know, as they hold rewards for the exploit to bounty, we've our, our approach to sort of vulnerabilities or, you know, uh, disclosing vulnerabilities is our zero day initiative with the researchers that, you know, disclose or publicly disclose the vulnerabilities which are verified and, and rewarded for, Um and this is kind of just shows like the vulnerabilities that we detected in 2021. And that there are other, you know, vendors as well that are doing, you know, that kind of activity. But it, I suppose it highlights the need for these kind of initiatives because we know that they're being reflected in this underground. And, you know, criminals are operating the way that we are. So we need to, you know, with a, with a zero day initiative, it gives us the insights, you know, to drive that um threat defense against new techniques 
that are being developed and innovated uh, in the underground. So, so yeah, like I'll say that our reports and the threat research that we that we have uh, are all available, uh, Neil. So I don't, you know, at the end of this, if people want to sort of see, see that, we can we can share that and any information in terms of those capture the flag events that we've run that obviously that you've been involved in as well so yeah I just think it's that element of humans involved and how criminals are adapting and, and the way that even you know for for our predictions we still see that that social engineering engineering is a is a threat or you know it's a an exploit that the you know cybercrime is still taking advantage of Actually, well, thank you very much. Uh, so, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely after this share uh, share some of the, those reports and research that you found. And yeah, I definitely found that interesting. Of you know the, the crowdsourcing, not just of of you know from from your perspective of you know encouraging good vulnerability disclosure, but crowdsourcing from bad actors as well in terms of trying to get you know a kind of you know anything we do, they're always going to try and follow and take advantage of as well. So yeah, that was. Definitely very interesting in terms of them being able to kind of again not just rely on technology but rely on the creativity of the of the criminal community yeah. to be able yeah. to find new ways into things. Smashing, thank you, uh, thank you very much, Sue. Thank you very um, much. And uh, yeah, just on to our kind of last vendor sponsor. Um, hi, Simon from uh, Picker Security. How's it going, Neil? Good, thank you very much. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, looking forward to uh, having a bit more of a break after after this session. I think absolutely right. right. Hand over to you. Uh, cheers, thanks. Um, so yeah, so we've been talking quite a lot about the sort of human compromise side of um, attacks, and uh, at Pickers, you know, we're a breach and attack simulation company. Um, we're all about testing um, security controls um, to see about their efficacy and see what they whether they're going to stand up to an attack or not. But there's always a human element to that side of things as well, um, in so much as your controls are only as good as the people that are configuring those controls, right? So um, uh, that's probably the, the area sort of side of things that I'm just sort of going to touch on um, just for the next few minutes. Um, so the way I think about how pickers can help security organisations um, with, with that type of human element side of things is that I think that the social engineering is always going to be porous. There's always going to be needs to um, train users to make them more aware and keep that awareness up and up and alert. At the end of the day, it's it's not their full time job to be security people. They've got a day job to do. It's just that we need them to be security focused as well. On top of that, and I think if you've not got an understanding of how well your other security controls are going to stand up um, to, to attacks, you're kind of fighting a war on two fronts, really. Um, and I think um, sort of validating. That, that side of the house means that you've got more time or sort of more mental space, let's put it that way, to, to focus on, on, on the awareness training. Um, and so um, when I talk about like how controls um, are configured and, and the dangers that, uh, that, that, that can persist from that, um, my background is, is sock and seam. So I used to work for a, a, a seam vendor um, and I've worked for a few service providers over the way, over the time. And um, I think one of the one of the things I was chatting about it today, actually, um, on a call with a, with a customer earlier, and we were talking about this this issue where um, people want to talk about the latest technology or the latest widget or UEBA or ML or AI or whatever it is. <clears throat> and the fundamental thing for me, particularly with detection tools like SIM and EDR and things like that, is is getting the fundamentals right is absolutely 
imperative. If you're not collecting the right log sources from the right host, you're not you you've got um, you've got poor visibility in your environment. But that often involves quite a, a labor-intensive, laborious type of work, right? So you maybe have maybe loads of different asset registers in your environment, maybe vulnerability management, maybe you've got Active Directory, in et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you've got to make sure that as those environments are changing as they do on a continual daily basis, that you're collecting the right logs or you're collecting logs from those from those right sources, um, which is a which is a difficult thing to do. Um, and, it, and it's difficult because it's laborious um and it's not a particularly interesting uh piece of work you know when i was doing it back in the day it involved sort of balancing up many different spreadsheets you know so it's not definitely not your kind of hacker hoodie trope that we've been talking about earlier it's it's definitely more shirt and glasses sat with excel open which is maybe not the sexiest side of, of security um and so if we can if we can help organizations automate that side of things and we can take that stress and that workload of those people, then their focus can be better um, better directed on on the attacks that are happening in the environment, whether they're technological attacks that are, are you know the next part of uh, of an attack that's come from a social engineering attack, or whether it's just a you know a, a, a kid with a script or, or, or whatever. And so I think um, I think that side of things um, sometimes doesn't come up in the discussion. We're talking about the the more uh, offensive offensive side of things. And I think Ronnie talked about um, mental health issues, um, which is obviously something that everybody these days is becoming more keenly aware of. And I think from my experience working in SOX, um, you know, I, you generally get like rows and rows of desks. They'll be facing a big monitor, a big wall of monitors, and they just see alarms coming through every single day. And that's their job day in and day out. It's kind of a bit of a treadmill job. Um, and so a lot of that is um, chasing down false positives. If you combine that with, uh, a lack of resources in the industry that we're all aware of, it becomes, a, you know, a very, very difficult job to do um, and a very difficult job to do well. So um, I, I think one of the things that, that we do here at Pickers or one of the things that I focus on when I'm talking to customers is, is how to solve those types of problems for their people so they can be, they can make themselves better defenders. Um, I was working, um, I won't name and shame people obviously, but I was working, a, I was working um, with a, with a company um, and they they were attacked successfully um, and they had a, a managed SOC um, that they were they were using but because they hadn't notified that SOC that they had implemented sort of a handful of new servers in their estate there was no visibility um, and it's taking advantage of those that, that, that type of gap or or attackers getting lucky uh, maybe and, and taking advantage of those types of gaps that they're the types of things that um, I, I think we can sort of really help and, and focus on on fixing um, and I think one of the things that Jenny was talking about um, earlier about um, awareness and you know if, if it's not people's job to know about security then um, you know as a security professional we can understand a lot of the problems that are out there but if it's not your day job sometimes you don't have the context for it or you don't you're not thinking about things in that way uh, and so I just was while she was saying that I thought about this uh, another little story from or a little another little scar maybe from from back in the day where I was working for uh, a larger company that had had a, um, a pen test and uh, the pen testers had managed to get domain admin privileges into the environment um, and they created themselves they created themselves a domain admin account and they recorded that as part of the pen test and they sort of filed that away in their report and then they deleted the account. But at the back end, what happened was the alarm had tripped uh, in the SIM. 
So Sim did exactly what it's supposed to do. Everything was okay from that perspective. But the ticket got passed to the Wintel team. And the Wintel team at that time was an operational team. They weren't really thinking about security at all. Um, and so they checked in Active Directory and said, well, we can't see any account. Your SIM must be wrong. Um, and we were like, well, no, no, the SIM's right. It's just the account has been deleted. Here's the logs for when the account has been deleted. And, and they couldn't understand why there was a problem. And it took it took quite a long conversation to, to talk to these guys that were used to dealing with server up-down issues, That why there, there was this... Um, this actual really bad security issue like you know we could have lost the domain they had total ownership of that domain um which could have disrupted operations that organization really terribly but because the because no servers had gone down or no one had got locked out of their account this team couldn't get their head around for the longest time um about why that that was a problem for them because the account was was no longer there so i think um it just speaks to even if you're in the know even if you're in the industry even if you're working with technology every day um, we shouldn't just assume that people know why these things are important. Um, and, um, and, and yeah, and, and that's just a circle back. That's also why it's so important to be able to validate that your controls um, and your tools are doing the things that you expect them to. So you can spend more time working with those, those groups and those organisations um, to, to build that awareness, because um, at the end of the day, uh, everybody needs to be concerned about security. Interesting. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, Armin. I think that shows that, you know, the, the challenge around, um, you know, kind of uh, security when even other IT teams don't necessarily always fully, fully embrace it um, shows that, you know, that the, the, the challenge um, of, uh, of trying to make sure that everybody is, uh, everybody's on board with it. So, so actually, so if I can invite um, kind of, you know, um, all the panel to be able to, to, to join back again. Um, so we've got a few questions. Smashing. So we've had a first question in from from the audience. Uh, kind of picked up on the on the, uh, the 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 business email compromise, and uh, you know I think that we've seen the numbers. It, it's been interesting some of the, the trends that we've seen of recent times. Obviously, ransomware is something we all do talk about in the industry significantly, but actually, kind of financial fraud and things like kind of. Uh, bank transfer fraud is actually kind of exponentially higher than ransomware. The importance of having a, a process in in place, um, kind of yeah, kind of what what the, the the thoughts are from the panel on how you how you can address that 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 sort of thing. Because again, it's it's one of those things that kind of a little bit beyond security. It's getting organisations to understand it, but it's it's organising people and process and and some of the kind of you know the more what should be in a way more simple things, but obviously aren't that simple. Yeah, I will say in terms of business email compromise, my top two recommendations, number one, enable two-factor authentication. Number two, establish processes. So hands down, like that's one of the, the pro, uh, updating your processes and establishing them is one of like the quickest, most effective ways because very much with what the question said was that scammers don't pick up on that. And it's very much the case. Who do you talk to when you have a wire transfer of $25,000, $50,000, $100,000. How much approval do you have to have in order to sign off on that? What is the known phone numbers that you use in order to do that? So those are the non-sexy way answers to the question that most people don't want to admit. Um, but yeah, it's very much a non-technical solution here of establish that process and know where the money's being sent. Yeah, I, Jenny, I think there are plenty of examples kind of in the book of everybody having the right systems in place. But in terms of process, even if it's just validating someone's lanyard when they come through the car park, uh, the car park gate, 
if you're not following processes, then you've immediately immediately introduced vulnerabilities into the system. But, but people don't follow processes. Processes. So, so here's, here's, <laughs> here's the thing, right? I'm not dis- discounting what Ronnie says because he's right. But here's the thing. You can put processes in place for days, right? You can tell people, do not go outside the process. The process is important. The process is for your security. It's for our security. It's Friday afternoon. Everyone's stressed. Maybe there's a holiday on Monday. Business email compromise. If I'm going to come in, I'm going to say, I know you're going home in an hour, but I'm XYZ boss with the ABC customer. You do it now. You do it now. And people will do it. What you have to do in addition to the processes is get your leadership team. So anyone who might be the subject of those business email compromise emails, they're going to impersonate. They have to make a public promise that they will never, ever ask someone to go around those processes, right? If they and, and the and the answer is if you get an out of context request, the answer is always no, no matter what. And those leaders, those people who can authorize those things, they have to say it and they have to be held accountable if someone goes around it if they ever do it. Because even if it's legitimate, right? Because that's the problem is processes, people will get around them. I used to get around processes all the time all the time, both as an employee and as a security tester. So you do need to do it, but know that one of the ways that we get into businesses and, you know, looking at Ronnie's slides, like that's exactly the type of stuff that we put on paper uh, for every client that we ever target. It's just that we're not malicious, right? So we're going to stop at the point of harm or being really, uh, you know, creating that harmony effect. Um, But yeah, that, you know, that's what we, that's exactly what we would do. And one of the things we do, we look physically at a building, but we look at the type of culture in a business. And we very often, we don't have to think outside the box to break in. We just need to watch what people do when they find something inconvenient or cumbersome. And their own employees will get around them all the time. So you do need the processes. Of course you do, but you need a commitment that no one is going to go around them and people have got to be held accountable if they ever do, even if it's not a scam or a con or a breach or anything. If a, if somebody goes around that process because it's an emergency, that's where the accountability is because you're teaching people that this can sometimes be legitimate. Um, now, just one more thing on it. The, the only thing that really would work is uh, what we used to, I was in manufacturing for many years and we called it a poker yoke, which is, you actually stop someone, physically stop someone. I suppose zero trust to be the nearest thing technically, guys. You'd know better than me. You just make it so that it can't be done, right? That There are no circumstances where this amount of money can ever be transferred without this, this, and this going on in the process. Like it's stopped. Because if you don't, someone will get around it. Yeah. And I think I think one of the challenges that we face kind of in a, in a kind of related note to that around cybersecurity is to try to make sure that cybersecurity is an enabler. So often people, you know, will get around a system. They'll go and use Dropbox when they're meant to be using LiveDrive because LiveDrive was locked down or they had permit. If they can't do their job effectively and they stop it, security stops them doing their job rather than enabling them to do their job, then they, w- then they will actively find their own way They'll around it. But the attackers won't do it. They'll do it for them. And, you know, here's the thing, right? We all do it. I remember I used to order. I was in procurement for many years. and We were only allowed to order a a certain quantity of uh, actual gold wire, right? I was in manufacturing. It was gold wire, copper wire and all sorts. Only allowed to order a certain quantity. 
So if we wanted to get around the system, we change the measurement from uh, millimeters to say uh, meters, which meant I was actually ordering thousands of millimeters, but it only looked the system could only see the unit of measure was within the minimum, the maximum quantity. Do you see what I mean? Just a sneaky little thing stopped me having to get a second signature. And that's what I mean. People, you, they learn. People are on those systems all day, every day, right? They will find a way if there is one to get around the system. So Ronnie's right. You've got to have process in place. You've got to try and stop that happening whenever you can. But the most important thing is, people have to make a commitment that they will never ask you to go around it. If, if you're ever asked to go out of context of what is normal practice, it is not a legitimate request, and it's got to be a no no matter what the consequences. Otherwise, we teach them now and again, you just have to ignore procedure. And Jenny, very much with what you were saying with your go the wire example, none of us want to be inconvenienced with something so simple. It's like, why do I need like 15 signatures for this? Make your processes easy. Make it to where people will want to follow them, not 16 layers in because people are less likely to do it. It's like, make it easy. We're lazy. We're going to do the easiest thing we can. Make it easy for people to do the right thing, yep, the exactly, secure exactly. thing. If that's got to be the easiest route to anything, it's got to be the most secure route. And that is not something, that is a journey. It's not a destination. And mm-hmm. it's also why we need to speak to people in different departments who use different software and different systems. Because honestly, when I went to procurement, my buyers knew the procurement side of our software better than anyone in IT. Because they started at eight o'clock and they finished it at like five, six, seven o'clock at night. Every single day, if there was a, any quirk at all, they get round it, you know. So I suppose that kind of leads nicely onto this, this kind of second question. And it'd be interesting, you know, kind of everybody view on this in terms of the percentage, the, the example that was given by Jason next to the question of 80 percent of breaches are, are internal. Obviously, we see lots of different numbers around that, but the number's high. Um, you know, is that when you get those significant breaches, how often are we are we seeing that percentage being high? Because at the end of the day, no one will know those systems better than the people that have to use them on a day-to-day basis. Um, if, if we start with you, Jenny, I mean, how often did it, did you find that, that when you were asked to investigate a system where a uh, situation where potentially there was a breach that actually an internal employee potentially was involved in it? Well, it depends. Yeah, it depends on the involvement. I mean, mistakes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and certainly kind of uh, negligence, you know, someone kind of or, or even sort of just mischief, just someone saying, you know, I, I'm going to do this because because I can't be bothered doing the right thing or because I'm disgruntled. You know, people, nobody ever thinks they're paid enough and everyone thinks they work too hard and everybody's got some axe to grind, some, you know, at some point in companies. So we'd see I don't know about the stats. Um, it it kind of depends. I I, I think. The malicious sort of insiders, malicious insiders in deep cover there for that purpose is rare. But for, but again, what you know, if we're looking for a way past a lot of security, the best thing to do is have someone on the inside. And talking about that kind of research that Ronnie's talking about, same thing that we we'd always do as well, not to deploy, but to say, look, these are your in, these are your insider threat risks because you know this person's got you know is having an affair or there's death or there's addiction or there's just some skeleton in the closet which most people have got something somewhere they prefer to keep private you know this is how it could be weaponized um so we try and hide it protect against it manage the risk we all know about risk management quite well in security 
But knowing that it's there, it's better to see that cockroach walk across the carpet than have it buried somewhere in the walls and you know it's there, but you can't see it. So again, it always comes down to the tech has to do the heavy lifting because the human problems will always be ever evolving, complicated, you know, and something that can always be exploited by, by external people to their benefit. So, you know, I see a lot coming from the inside. Um, at least at some point, there's somebody on the inside involved, even if it's just the person that kind of made that mistake or forgot to patch the software or, you know, whatever it was. But I don't know about the numbers. Um, I see plenty of, you know, malicious third party threats that didn't deploy someone on the inside either. Yeah. Okay. Um, one thing that's kind of got, got mentioned a few people about about how we need to approach cybersecurity testing, but I think maybe that applies a little bit more beyond, you know, to the, the whole industry. Um, and one thing that we've seen a lot in terms of the, the stories and and how you know, kind of you know, kind of both from from your side, Jenny, but also some of the creative ways we've seen some of the most high profile breaches is a lot of creativity. And we don't talk about creativity from a cybersecurity perspective because, you know, hey, it's, it's all you know, it's all hoodies and hackers and, and, and you know, ones and zeros. But actually, I think maybe do we as an industry need to to take those lessons and, and have a much more creative approach to whether that's designing our systems or whether that's how we engage with employees to get them on site to make it not necessarily entertaining, but to, to shake them out, to, to, to take a more left field view. So they're looking at it in a different way rather than it being very procedural. I would say, yeah, 100%, because at the end of the day, I want all the panelists to raise your hand. Have you ever read your car manual page to page? <laughs> and the answer is absolutely no one, because that stuff is so boring. It's so dry and absolutely no one wants to read that. You only read it when you go and have to check your oil. How much oil do I put in my car? That's the only time you open your manual. And that's the thing with security is so many of us, whenever we go and push out the information, whenever we go and push out education, we push it out in our context as, tech, as technical practitioners. We need to start realizing that we have to put it in language that the users will want to see. So try and have fun with it. Try and make it enjoyable because you're not going to read that car user manual. Make it something where they're going to want to be look at. Make it something where they're incentivized in order to do that. Make it gamif gamify it. Make it to where the best fish reported for the month gets a $25 gift card. Now you incentivize every single employee to go and report that fish. See, I, do, I, I, do, I disagree with that, you know, okay, honestly, okay. Ronnie. I'll tell you what, I think you should do it, but I don't think every single employee... Right. There are plenty of people and a bunch of research to show that that type of gamification actually does not teach people anything. Oh, what I it, didn't realize that. Interesting. What it, what it does is people are interested in the game and winning yeah. the, and maybe winning the voucher, okay. but the actual kind of lessons aren't necessarily taught. Yeah, yeah. But to your point about making the whole thing it, not the car manual, I think you should have something like that for those people who do love that. And then you should have something that's quietly read for people who like to sit quietly and do that you know people who aren't neurotypical sometimes don't like the noise and the competition and everything I think your point is right it's just that I kind of slightly off mm -hmm. off off uh, center on it lots of different ways constantly all the time and let them come to you and suggest it because if not we're being prescriptive and that is the enemy of creativity and and, and you know to Neil's point I'll tell you why uh, criminals and, and everyone else are more creative is because they have less rules than people who work for companies, 
right? So if you're told that this crazy things that we get told on pen tests, you know, you can't do this on this date because X, Y, Z is happening. And we can't let you do it at the weekend. And you mustn't touch this door and you mustn't touch that door. Or, you know, everyone on site wears this. It makes me just laugh because we don't have that from the attack perspective. Do what I like. And because they can do what they like, they do see things differently. The minute that we constrain people by co- any kind of corporate rules and regulations, it starts to squash that creativity. But unfortunately, we can't just live in the Wild West if you were a real company. So that's kind of the square that we're going to have to circle. And, you know, what, what Ronnie's saying is right. You know, so you've got to put the, 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 the gamification, the £25 voucher for the people who like that. You've got to think of something else for people who don't like that. We have to be on the ball and constantly accepting feedback and suggestions so that as far as we are able within those corporate restraints which are necessary of course we can be creative as well and the best creativity crowdsource your people a lot of organizations who say our people don't really sit through the training never really ask the people much about well what would they prefer this is necessary like we used to get slips trips and falls in health and safety and I was in charge of warehouses I had to do it every six months You've got to go on your slips, trips and falls. Don't pick this up this way. Report. Nobody enjoys it. You just have to do it. So if you have to do it, it's that loop of feedback, feedback, feedback. And accept that some of this is very boring for people. It just is. Yeah, I think yeah. also going back to the point you made earlier, like what would it be now? That, that zero trust element of, you know, making sure that person is that person with, you know, what's in place in terms of technology that we have available, cybersecurity technologies available to do every check that we could possibly, because of that human error side of, I've got an email, it is a Friday afternoon, you know, you know, for all those stories that we've just spoken about. And I do think zero trust is, you know, it it is is necessary. And with all the detection and response tools as well that we've got, you know, as to if that person's accessing something, where are they moving to? And no, actually, they shouldn't be allowed. And it's, you know, from that, it's human error. And how do you prevent those risks based on that? And and this is a massive argument as well for the for as, as diverse a workforce as you can get, and particularly people who are not neurotypical, right? And I've got loads of people in my uh, immediate family who are not neurotypical. And the reason I'm going to say this is because those different perspectives, particularly if we pick up on uh, Ronnie's point about emotions, right? Emotions aren't, they're not governable. They're just, they're just not, right? You, if you're, the, the reason being they save your life, right? So that's basically why it's got to be quicker than rationale. But when you have certain, certain types of uh, neural atypical thinking, they're a lot less subject to quick emotional reaction in certain circumstances. So what we've got now is like, the arguments for diversity throughout throughout uh, security and throughout workforces is just getting bigger and bigger, as is the argument for flexibility. Because if you say to someone, you have to do, you have to wait these hours in this location, and this is controversial, then and they don't want to do that, how creative do you think that person is? You know, this we are in a time and a place, and COVID um, and working from home all help with it, where we actually probably can. Uh, embrace a new way of working and and what we might find i suspect we'll find is that helps us be more secure in the long run but we have to embrace it and we have to understand that a lot of the things a lot of the lines we think along no longer apply 
right? The, the attacks, the threats, as we saw from Sue's presentation, it's changing, it's evolving, it's growing. We have to move with it or we're going to get left behind. Yeah, I was going to make a perfect point I was going to mention around the diversity and I think all security teams and I think us as an industry, because it is that is that kind of extension on that, that creativity or the extension on the, the process. The more that we stay within those kind of lines or we always think about things exactly the same way, you can absolutely bet that the bad actors out there are not doing that. And the, the, the different range of thoughts and experiences and, and creativity and the, the way we all think within the industry is only going to is only going to make us more informed and better equipped to be able to defend against uh you know against the next generation threat because we'll all be thinking in different ways if we all think in the same way then um you know we're all going to defend in the same way and then we become very very predictable yeah yeah so so well we're very much coming up to the the top of it but i wanted to kind of just take a point from from everybody um you know kind of certainly in terms of a kind of a top tip in terms of a, a practical takeaway an easy thing for somebody to be able to do listening to this in terms of you know what they could do either if they're a partner talking to their customer or if they're a, an organization in a in an it team there um you know what's the the first thing that kind of in terms of the, the some of the things that we've talked about today that you could could potentially do sam if i could start with you uh so i would say validate what you've got in place at the moment so many people just assume that things are working in the way that they expect them to work um and they don't ever test what happens um when they're unless they're being attacked right that's the that's the first time they find out it doesn't work so uh yeah validation uh, around what you've got existingly and then you know the gap between where you are and where you need to get to and you can work on a plan but without that you don't know where you're starting from Flashing. uh Sue? Yeah, for me, I think definitely from, uh, you know, some of the events that we've run from, like with Capture the Flag, the the visibility, that detection and response, you don't you don't know what you don't know if you can't see it, if you don't know what's going on and how do you prioritise? I think that's the thing. There's a lot of noise, there's a lot of alerts. And I think, you know, from that detection and response and visibility point of view, that's, that's some, certainly a message that we see resonates with some of these Capture the Flag events. Uh, Ronnie, I would say make sure that you treat your employees like humans, not some dumb person who clicks a phishing email, because at the end of the day, would you hire a stupid employee? Of course not. Your employees are smart. Treat them as such. Meet them where they are, not where you are, in order to have a good two-way communication in order to get ahead of all this stuff. Because until we start treating each other like humans, we ain't getting nowhere with this. So. Perfect. Thank you. And Jenny? I love that what Ronnie's just said. It's exactly true. And I say and, and I say it myself, Ronnie. I totally agree. I would say know your people better than the bad guys. I've said it before. You need to know, and it's at line management level, right? All teams need to know each other. They need to know when someone's stressed or under pressure. You need to know that because when we look for insider threat, particularly, but we look for anything, I know the tech does it as well. Um, you're looking for breaks and patterns you know yeah. and, and we need to see that in the humans and and just tying in with what we were saying before is if you possibly can let people work the way they want to work try and be try and know them and support them but let people get on with their job stop putting these stupid rules in place because honestly they've got enough rules that we have to enforce for security let someone do different hours let someone work from home that will help you be more secure because you don't create people who are annoyed with the company and the ideas will start to flow that's what I would say. 
Bashing. Great note to end on. Well, thank you um, very, very much. Thanks to everybody uh, attending and, and watching. Really, really appreciate your time. Hope you found it informative. Huge thank you um, to, to our, our sponsors, Simon, Sue and Ronnie uh, from Pickers Trend and CoFence. Much appreciated. Jenny, thank you very much for your time as well. Really, really, really entertaining. Brilliant. Thank you, everybody else. Um, have a good day. We will have recorded this session um, and, and we will make it kind of further available to everybody if you if you miss or had to, had to head off early. So once again, thanks, everybody, and uh, have a good rest of your day. Thanks, Neil. Cheers. Thanks, Bye. Cheers. Thanks, Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.